back them dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Help bellboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. I'm Zachary Scott Johnson. On today's episode, we're discussing Meryl's 1986 comedy, Heartburn. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. That really does help, and we appreciate the kind reviews that have come in so far. If you want to send us an email or play our Six Degrees of Meryl Streep game with us, please email us at MerylStreepPodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, MerylStreepPodcast at gmail.com. We're ready to start today's show. I ain't gonna live on lonely street no more, no more. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you this morning, Miss Meryl McNally? I'm excellent. How are you, Zach? Good. I'm good. Um, I just wanted to do a quick programming note to anybody who happened to notice in our last episode that we mentioned that it was recorded on June 11th and that it didn't get up until like June 20th or something like that, that we were having issues with our, our podcast hosting site. So sorry, it took a little extra long to get it actually up and up and running there, but it's up. So uh, yeah, what have you been up to, Meryl? Oh my gosh. Um well, for my theater company show and playing catch up on work, and um, sadly, my godfather passed away, so we had a service on Monday, and so it's been a it's been a busy kind of emotional week. But I, you know, got to watch Heartburn. Yeah, yeah, I was sorry to yeah, I was sorry to hear about your godfather. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was. Um, he was a corker. <laughs> he was very funny and and um, very charismatic. And um, he he had cancer, so he was he was in a lot of pain towards the end. So it was good. It, it was um, not good, but um, a relief. Yeah. When, when he went for his sake. So. Yeah, that happens sometimes. Yeah, we we honored him beautifully on Monday with a very joyful service, and uh, yeah. Cool. Cool. That's the best way. Um, so, yeah. have you had time to watch anything? Let's do our first. What have you been watching this week? Segment. Is there anything that you've had time to watch this past week? Um, not really. I have been. I have been revisiting very slowly Game of Thrones, which is the the first part of the last season. It's starting in July, and so I'm. I'm revisiting that for all those Game of Throners out there. Yeah. How about you? Um, I went to see a movie in the theater this week, actually, for the first time in a while. Um, all right. Yeah. It. Uh, I wish what I. See? I wish I could say it was Wonder Woman because we've been talking about that last time. How that's the oh, kind of thing we need I to went support. To see Wonder Woman. Oh, you went to see Wonder Woman and you I forgot? I forgot that. Yeah, we'll come back to that. <laughs> what did you go see? I wish I could say it was that one. Um, I, I went to this movie because it was a free ticket and it was not only 3D but IMAX too and I couldn't turn it down. It was the Tom Cruise, the mummy 
movie. Um, oh, I would have totally gone too. <laughs> yeah, I I will admit I know he's uh, personal issues aside. You know the Scientology thing and all of that. Uh, Tom, yeah. uh, Tom Cruise movies I pretty universally like. I know that probably won't be the most popular of opinions on a Meryl Streep podcast. Although they did do a movie together, um, but yeah. it's. It's, I don't know. I, I like all his, I, I'm as. No, I even love them when they're bad. I do too. And you know, I'm as comfortable. Yeah, no, you're on the same page with Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm as equally comfortable with a, you know, kind of serious Meryl Streep movie as I am with a like cheap action thriller with Tom Cruise. I'm totally fine with both. And, yeah. and you know, the Tom Cruise ones are, I probably watch or rewatch more often. You know, I wouldn't say I like them more, but I mm-hmm. rewatch them because they're easy to watch, you know? And, uh, yeah, absolutely. So I wouldn't say The Mummy is among his best stuff. Uh, it, it I don't think it's as bad as most people are saying. It's kind of interesting the way it's been perceived. Uh, you know, it, it's doing really well overseas and kind of mediocre here. But, you know, everybody's acting as if it were a giant flop and it's it's not. It'll be interesting because it's clearly they designed it to be like another uh, kind of reboot of a franchise thing. So, you know, it clearly was meant to be more than one movie. Uh, but since it's been received less than stellarly here, it'll be interesting to see if they actually do end up making more, I think. But there have been other instances yeah. where there have been kind of, you know, middling receptions to things here and they still, because it does so well overseas, they still end up making, you know, a sequel. There was a movie like that recently. I can't remember what it was, but I remember thinking they made a sequel to that. Really? Because it, it didn't do very well, but sometimes they do pretty well overseas. Yeah. Oh, what are you talking about? There's like, um, oh, they keep doing so well overseas. It's a franchise. Right. Yeah, there's a few like that. I feel like the first now, I feel like the first now you see me might be in that camp where it did okay here yeah. but it wasn't huge and then now you see me two comes out and we're like wait a second i don't know i'm sure there are other ones that were like that but so what was your opinion of wonder woman oh it's it's really wonderful <laughs> it, it, it's it's just really wonderful it's a very bizarre experience because um uh if you are uh, a woman and you go down and you go sit down to watch that movie um, you know, you go sit down to watch that movie like you watch every other movie, and then you get about 10 minutes in, and you're like, I've never seen a movie like this. Huh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we've all seen comic book movies, but it is incredibly strange to see a woman in that role. And, sure. and in, it's, it's the fact that she's the lead action hero. She's not the sidekick. She's not black widow she's not some ancillary character it is all about her right and um in that respect it's sort of mind-blowing now and because it was directed by a you can really see that it was directed by a woman and it's good she did a fantastic job and so i was impressed um, but you could tell that the story and and the screenplay were written by men. Okay. You could tell to some degree. And you could tell a woman had had their hands on it to change some of it. Um, there's, um, and I hope no serious Wonder Woman fans out there. I, I, don't, I don't know the history of the comic at all. So let me put that out there. And I, I will go see the comic book movies, but I am not well versed in the world of comics at all. 
You and me both. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, I felt like there were still aspects of, you know, the sort of male ideal of, like, feminine beauty. You know, like, they have all the Amazons are still wearing corsets and miniskirts because that's clearly how I would do battle. Right. You know, leather corset and miniskirt. And I understand, like, part of that is the comic book aesthetic and whatnot, but... Um, you know, and they had an opportunity to make the real bad guy a woman, and they kind of missed that opportunity, which would have been really fantastic. Um, but um, one of the things I've read, which is interesting and I noted, was that Chris Pine is in it and plays her her counterpart. And his part is so well-written, and so is hers, that there's actually a really dynamic story going on. Well, most of the time, women in that counterpart role, when the man's the action hero, don't get half the attention in the screenplay. And so the story isn't as good. Huh. You know, his character got a lot of attention and, and development, almost as if he was a lead. And I wish they would, I wish screenwriters would do women that service and they go to write women in that same part because they don't. Right. And, and you can tell, you can tell the difference. Right. So it was it was really fascinating. It was wonderful. I highly recommend it. I ju- I enjoyed myself for two hours, absolutely, and uh, Alcador was amazing. Cool. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I hear people saying things like, you know, you hear a certain sect of the population saying, you know, like you said, we've we've never seen a movie like this, um, and then another sect going well sure you have alien you know sigourney weaver in alien you know she was the lead of an action a female lead of an action movie but you know those movies were a long time ago i have never seen alien right well by the way and that's that's one thing i'm glad you mentioned that but even still that's not really an excuse because one movie that was made in 1979 or whenever that movie was made now first of all i love alien i i don't mean to sound dismissive of alien because i think that's a great movie an iconic character could not be you know could not be improved actually but you know the the flip side of this argument the like you know trying to dismiss this oh this is the first female action movie isn't maybe not the first but it 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 has been way too long and uh you know well and there have been fantastic characters like furiosa in mad max Oh, and, sure. and really, that movie should have been called Furiosa because Charlize Theron is so unbelievable. And it's really about her. But what the filmmakers probably knew was that it wasn't going to sell. Or they didn't, the studios wouldn't have bought the idea of right. Furiosa. That movie is called Mad Max, and Mad Max barely speaks. Right. I mean, he's just not the main point. And, um,. I don't know what sets this movie apart. It's not that I've never seen a powerful woman on screen before, because I have. I don't think I've ever seen, um, and I'm not sure about Alien because I haven't seen it. It feels like a crime to say. But there's so much time and attention given to um, the subject of of femininity and women's power sure. in Wonder Woman. And I think maybe that, I think maybe that's the difference. Sure. Um, is that it's actually paid attention to. Yeah. Well and addressed. Uh, I don't know. 
I'm I'm glad to hear that it was that it's doing so well and that it's being appreciated and approved by by everyone pretty universally. You know, I'm not hearing anything negative about it at all. So, um, there is a slight moral connection, which is that you know I think I think you might have mentioned last time that. Uh, so I don't know who directed. Do you know off the top of your head who directed Wonder Woman? Patty Jenkins. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll probably she cut directed it. Monster where Charlize Theron. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Merrill yeah. the Merrill connection there is so like you said, I think in a in last episode, she's the first woman to get a studio project worth over a hundred million dollars, right? You know, that was the budget of over a hundred million dollars. But I think she also had uh-huh. the biggest opening ever for a female f- directed movie. I think that's correct. And the previous record was by uh, the woman who directed Mamma Mia, who I'm also blanking on her name at the moment. Silita Lloyd. Oh, okay. Or Philida. I think it's Silita. Yeah. Yeah, she did the Iron Lady. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she's interestingly not attached to the sequel to Mamma Mia. She's interesting. I think it's. I wonder why. I think it's a man that's directing the sequel. I think they've already named a director. I don't know who the director is, but I think they already named a director, and it's a man, which was a little bit disappointing because you would think they would. May I mean, hopefully they at least offered her. You know, maybe she's too busy now. Hopefully, whatever she's doing right now, she's just too busy, and she was offered it and couldn't do it for some reason, and not you know the opposite where she wasn't offered it. But um, anyway. So there is a slight moral connection there in that uh, the records broken by Wonder Woman were, some of them anyway, were previously held by Mamma Mia. So go figure. Awesome. Yeah. So, well, today we're here to talk about uh, Meryl's 1986 comedy Heartburn. Uh, do you want to do our, our plot summary? You're so much better at that than I am, Meryl. Sure. Um, the the film is based off of a novel written by Nora Ephron, who also wrote the screenplay of the same name, Heartburn. And it's loosely based. It's, it's fiction, but it is uh, loosely, if not closely based, on Nora Ephron's marriage to Carl uh, Bernstein, the famous Washington journalist who... Um, broke Watergate, the Watergate scandal. Right. With, um, correct? Yes. Yep. Um, and um, it's a it's a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It, it is sort of a, um, a brush of look at their meeting, their marriage, um, their their first child, their second child, and ultimately their, their parting of ways because she finds out that he has been cheating on her. And I'm not really revealing anything when I say that. It's pretty, right. it's pretty, um, it's sort of widely advertised being the subject matter. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that's basically it. I mean, you almost feel like a voyeur when you're watching it in some ways. Yeah. Not a lot happens. Right. And actually, among some of the reviews I read, that was that was probably the thing that stuck out the most was that people were saying, well, it's fine, but like not much really happens in this movie, um, which is true to a certain extent. I, I will say that I found it more lighthearted this time than I have in the past. You know, I, I didn't want to give anything away, but last time I think I even said something like, well, it's a comedy. And I kind of said it like you did, where comedy had a question mark at the end. Uh, instead of a period, yeah. 
good um, because I never really thought of it as a comedy before. I know it's billed as a comedy, but it never struck me as a comedy. And I think I think it's kind of doing it a little bit of a disservice to think of it as a romantic comedy, which is, you know, now it, a lot of times that's kind of how you'll see it marketed. Like I'm looking at the DVD right now and yeah. it makes it look like it's some um, romantic comedy and it's not. I mean, it's a divorce movie. You know, it's not a romantic comedy. Right. It really is. Um, it's still very good. It's just you want to be truth in advertising as far as I'm concerned. But so this is I, I got the impression this is one of your favorite Meryl Streep movies. Is this in your top five? I forget. It, uh, I'm fairly certain I put it in my top five. OK, I thought I'm so, not too. Sure after revisiting, I'm not sure it's still there. OK, but but I but I could see my reasons why it was there. There For might sure. There might have been some nostalgia with this one too, you know, growing up with this yeah. movie to a certain extent. Yeah, and watching my mom watch it. Right. Yeah. I think was a big part of it. I think. But, but yeah. I think moms of people our age loved this movie. I don't. I don't know. And oh yeah. Maybe there's something about relating to it, you know, like the idea of her kind of taking her life back, because really her character is you know, is is working and is highly regarded at, at her job. And, you know, she she kind of gives everything up to, you know, be married and have kids. And then when she finds out that uh, that Bernstein, uh, played by Jack Nicholson, um, is cheating on her, she takes her life back. And there's a lot to be uh, admired about that. Uh, so I think yeah. there are some elements of that. I'm wondering how far into this review we're going to get before we start talking about Meryl Streep's glasses in this movie, because holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, um, uh, so I found, I found an article from 1986 when the movie came out okay. um, about, about the film, and she, she stole more Efron's glasses. Oh. <laughs> Those were what Nora Ephron was wearing around at the time. <laughs> I'm pretty sure she stole her posture and her glasses. She said that she she and Mike Nichols were really trying to focus on keeping it fictional, right. but that she absolutely used Nora Ephron's posture and glasses to help her get into character. That's that's interesting. They were they were uh, very eighties. <laughs> They're distractingly offensive. <laughs> they were enormous but glasses. I loved them. Yeah, I did too, actually. And actually, you st- yeah, I keep I keep seeing people wearing these like giant eighties glasses now. People keep trying to bring these eighties glasses back, and um, I'm I don't know. I'm not a huge fan of that. I hope I hope that doesn't turn anybody off. But I I I think it's just kind of it's it's forcing this thing. In my opinion, this yeah. this thing instead of it actually, I don't know. I guess I'm not articulating it very well. But instead of it, seems like it's kind of almost still like mocking the style rather than actually trying to present it as like this is cool. It's like yeah, trying to be retro. It. Almost like it's prematurely revisited. Right. Right. So yeah, um, I feel that way about the '90s thing going on right now too. Yeah. Please let's not. Please, I beg of you all, <laughs> let's not do that. Too soon. It's too soon. <laughs> I I saw something somewhere that speaking of the the fictional element that um, there were some legalities involved in that that for 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 the real Bernstein they part of their divorce it kind of held up their divorce proceedings I think because when she wrote yeah. the book you know they had to like 
he he had something in there about he he wanted to pre- be presented in a kind of not slanderous way and uh so they kind of had to to make him not seem horrible in this movie yeah yeah and you know i think that maybe you know there were some reviews about it being watered down or not not tough enough like too shallow and i i my guess is, and I can't know, but my guess is that is a result of that because he actually, um, uh, he actually had a say. Like he got to see several versions and right. he got to make sure his portrayal was decent. And I think at some point that just gets watered down because you're taking out all the conflict. Right. And that's what makes a good story. That's what raises the stakes. You take that out and everybody's nice. Right. You know. And and I think that's how the movie hit. It's just kind of blah. Right. Yeah. That's I I agree that it it I don't know if if they needed to to wait a while until the divorce was passed and they didn't have to have I don't know. It's it's really kind of interesting because they didn't use his name. His you know his character wasn't Carl. So I don't know. I I'm surprised that they had to go through that process. You know, they weren't portraying him as a, it's kind of like the postcards from the edge thing a few years later where, you know, Debbie Reynolds was being kind of exaggerated by Shirley MacLaine in that Mike Nichols movie starring Meryl Streep, you know, but this one they had to like try to portray him in a totally different way. I don't know. There's just a weird thing going on, but it's still it's still a good movie. Apparently, he re- he received the publishing of the book really well, but then when he found out she sold the movie rights, um, his argument was that it was getting into their kids' private lives. Oh. And um, I, you know, it's tough because you know you rewrite something enough. There's two daughters. You know, all the characters have different names, but everybody knows. Right. You know, the public knows. And so I think he actually, um, from what this article said, um, McLean's, um, um, he actually won the right to suggest revisions to the screenplay. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So, and so he saw a lot of versions and implemented changes. Huh. And, um, you know, Mike, Mike Nichols strikes me as very professional and gracious and um, went with the flow. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and there's kind of yeah. a, there could have been a whole other element to this because one of the people that was offered the Jack Nicholson role early on was Dustin Hoffman, who had played Carl Bernstein in All the oh. President's Men. He had literally oh, played, funny. you know, the Carl, the real Carl Bernstein, a few years yeah. earlier in All the President's Men, um, and. So that would have been interesting. But of course, by that point, Merrill and Dustin Hoffman had also been in Kramer versus Kramer, which was another divorce movie, first of all. So that might have been a tough sell in that regard. Plus, I don't think Merrill had a great experience working with Dustin. It's kind of up for debate whether she would have been willing to work with him again. Um, I don't know. They haven't worked together since. So I, I'm guessing she probably has tried not to work with him based on the the experience they had together in Kramer versus Kramer. But Tinkin, yeah. do you know that Mandy Patinkin was originally cast in the, in the lead role and he was replaced by Jack Nicholson and, after a day or two of filming? Really? Yeah. Mandy Patinkin. You know what? Did Mandy Patinkin speak about that when he did inside the actor's studio? I don't know. I've never seen that. I, I, I haven't seen that interview. I have a vague recollection of him talking about, 
a similar situation, if not that one. Yeah. That's really funny. You know, Mandy, Mandy Patinkin, just having seen him interviewed, that's really fascinating to me. He's, um, he's very, very strong-minded. Right. Um, and that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but he has, he has very firm beliefs about what should and shouldn't happen, you know, with his characters and film. And so it doesn't surprise me. Right. Well, and he had trouble on, he was on a show, not Homeland, it was before that, because I think he's, he's been Criminal Minds, it was Criminal Minds, and there was, that's what I'm remembering him telling the story about. Right, there was a big to-do when he got fired, I think, he either got in a fight with somebody or something, and, um, it was it was not a it was kind of a burnout there where things got very public and went back and forth. Although I did see I, I read a print interview with him not long ago where he took responsibility for that and he basically said that he uh-huh. he did not handle that well. So he kind of owned up to that one. And I think he's around that time I remember thinking, well, maybe he's always difficult to work with. But I don't think that's true because I think um I think in certain situations, he's very well received. Like I said, Homeland, he's, you know, you always hear about how harmonious everybody is there. It must have just been something specific with Criminal Minds. And um, I have a hard time with Criminal Minds. I see it every once in a while, but that show is so violent. I think it's so disturbing. Yes. It's so disturbing. I have trouble. I have trouble knowing it exists. And I watch really dark stuff. I do, too. I won't go there. I don't know what it is about Criminal Minds. I think it's the serialization of it. You know, I've watched The Killing. I've watched, my gosh, I even watched Cannibal, which is so disturbing. Right. There's something about the way Criminal Minds has has formulaically approached such violent subject matter that detaches you so much that it's eerie and offensive. Sorry, Criminal Minds. Well, I think it's it's just kind of torture porn is is really what it comes down to. Yes. It, it it's in a way not plus. I'm sure it appeals to some. I mean, I think the show's been on forever, so obviously it has a certain audience that loves that. But man, it's I have a hard time with that one. But um, yeah. So anyway, there's a great cast in this though. Besides Jack Nicholson, uh, Jeff Daniels is in this. His second. Well, this is his first movie with Meryl. They were reteamed later for the hours. Uh, Stockard Channing is in this. Joanna Gleason is in this. Maureen Stapleton, Richard Maser, Catherine O'Hara, uh, Stephen Hill, Milos Forman, uh, a couple other folks. Mercedes Rule, uh, Kevin Spacey, in uh, his first movie, pretty memorable. So start for yeah. him. Tony Shalhoub filmed scenes uh, that were later cut, although you can still see him in the background of, of one scene, but uh, he was he was originally supposed to be in this. And then also uh, Mamie Gummer, when she was a baby, is yeah. in this movie. She plays Annie the baby, and it was interesting because uh, she, Natalie Stern is what she's billed as. Instead of Mamie Gummer, oh, they billed funny. her as Natalie Stern because Meryl kind of wanted to keep it a secret that that was her baby. <laughs> So I often, when I watch films with, with, with toddlers and babies in them, wonder how they have gotten the child to cry or do whatever they need to do to fit that scene, right? right. Because sometimes it's pretty specific. And so I, this is before I knew that was Mamie Gummer because I wasn't paying attention. And I was watching the scene and I had that thought because she was calling Mama Mama to Meryl Street, which is really difficult to do with a toddler. Right. 
because they're going to call Mama Mama off camera wherever their mom is. So that was the first thing. I was like, well, that's amazing. How did they get that one-year-old to do that? Right. And then she started singing Iffy Bitsy Spider. I thought, my gosh, they have way too much rapport. And sure enough, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. They, the chemistry, I mean, first of all, Mamie Gummer is adorable as a baby. That is an so adorable, adorable child. Another collaboration with Mike Nichols. This was, I guess, their second one after Silkwood. Yeah. This is their middle period yeah. one. Kevin Spacey, his first, um, you know, his first movie, yeah. he, he robs, he kind of follows her and robs her it's group. It's one of my favorite scenes. I love it when he tells everybody to get it down on their stomach and she can't because she's pregnant and she's so polite to him. Right. Know, he's robbing. He just shot at them. And she was like, I'm so sorry. Please don't shoot me, but I can't lay down on my stomach. She's seven months pregnant. Right. <laughs> and he's like, well, do do the best you can. <laughs> I love the... I mean, it's just so... It's just so ludicrous. It's amazing. Yeah. I love the end of that scene because this is right after she's found out that, that Nicholson's been cheating on her. And so she's... Um, so what he steals from her is her wedding ring. And she's kind of so upset about the, you know, what he's done that she doesn't really care. And so he actually apologizes to her on his way out the room. He says, sorry about your ring lady. And she kind of goes, oh, whatever. You know, like she doesn't even care that he's stealing it because she just doesn't want to, you know, it's a bad memory at this point for her anyway. <laughs> I love the little tag on that bit. Do you have other favorite scenes so in this movie? Yeah, I love... Um there's a couple moments, the very opening of the film when they're at that wedding, the wedding that they meet at. Yeah. And they're sitting, um, listening to the vows or not listening. And Meryl Streep is just totally moved. And then it cuts to Jack Nicholson and he's practically drooling. He's so bored. Right. And it just sort of sets up the whole, there's a couple things like that where the truth just comes out without, you know, without talking about it. Like when they're, um, when they find out they're pregnant and they're singing all the baby songs and eating pizza, it's just so, it's so awkward because they're trying to be enthusiastic, but it's not, it's not really working. Right. And they're just such, they're, they're phenomenal actors. And so it, it's just so beautifully played. Like you, you just laugh, but you also cringe a little. And then my favorite part of the whole film is when he goes into the soliloquy from Carousel. And it extends to the next morning when he starts to sing the part about it being a girl. Yeah, it kills me. I love it. This, um, it's funny. Okay, I actually had a weird thing this time. I there's, I have a weird thing. I, I <laughs> long running jokes. I sometimes have a problem with. Um, in that, like, they're funny to me at first, and then they're really not funny. And then, like, if it goes on long enough, it becomes funny to me again. Yeah. Um, and this one. This time that I watched it landed in that middle period where I kind of was like, okay, my reaction yeah, was like, basically, right. My reaction to it was basically what her reaction was, where she covers up her head with the pillow thing. Right. So that's why I love it so much, right? Because they don't know the words to any songs about babies, but he happens to know every single word to the soliloquy right. from Carousel. Yeah, that is kind of funny. And then he just goes on and on and on, and it's just this perfect illustration to and that's why I love it so much because her response is like, "Yep, it's totally tired." And it wasn't. It was so bizarre. He did her face when he started to sing it at first. 
And he's like, my boy, Bill. She's like, oh, my God. <laughs> and they're clearly not on the same page. Right. And that's, that's what I love about it so much. So so the, the reason it landed poorly for you is also the reason why I think it's so great. That scene is just such a unique one. I also like as they're because they're eating pizza when they start the scene, you know, yeah. at, when, when they start singing. And. Jack has this way of like he eats with his mouth open like he just kind of like chomps oh, yeah. in this like really yeah, aggressive way and uh so that really distracted me this time too I don't want to cut you know again I, I don't want to sound too harsh about Jack Nicholson I think he's uh, a, one of the great actors of all time although do you know the whole Jack Nicholson thing that came up a few years ago with that with his um unauthorized biography Yes, and it, it really bothers me. Yeah, it's totally weird. Because I didn't. I don't believe it. No, I didn't know about this until I started doing research for this movie, and I came across like it. Neither. And it showed up, and of course, all these tabloids. So of course, you know, an unauthorized biography, and then tabloids. So it's going to be real, verifiable information. But for anybody who doesn't know that what we what we're talking about, Jack Nicholson, there was an unauthorized biography written about him. I don't know, three, four, five years ago, and in it, the author whose name I can't remember, and I don't want to look up because I don't want to encourage people to buy this book because clearly it's filled with, you know, erroneous information, claimed that. Um, so again, Jack Nicholson replaced uh, Mandy Patinkin in this movie. So after a couple days of filming, so he must have been, you know, pretty quick. He had worked with Mike Nichols a couple times before. They had done Carnal Knowledge and The Fortune together before this, and they also did a movie called Wolf after this with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, so you know, he right. he knew Mike Nichols, but the real reason that he wanted to do this movie was to work with Meryl Streep, and so he he you know agreed to fill in at the last moment and the story in the unauthorized biography was that he was coming on to Meryl Streep so often during this movie that afterwards she said I'm never going to work with him again that this was a horrible experience working with him and that he was just kind of a creep basically again this is not verified information that's the first thing right that's the first thing I don't believe because I mean what her entire career we've heard I, I have maybe two instances where she's spoken I guess you could construe it as negatively about somebody she's worked with right but never have I ever heard her say anything about co-stars right well and and this although to be fair this she never did say anything like that publicly so I think the the right the idea That's was true. that she was saying that privately to people just saying that she didn't want to work with him again but even that I don't buy because he's turned up you know he he was at her AFI tribute you know I feel like they've honored each other at events and stuff and I don't think you do that yeah. when you're not actually happy to see the other person you'll notice Dustin Hoffman didn't show up at her AFI and you know some of the other folks right. we'll talk to uh, you know talk about in other movies Woody Allen and we were just talking about before we started recording the director for before and after you know are people she had some issues with and um, you know those are people you you never see her talk about afterwards again but um, so anyway going back to the biography what was really interesting of course is the next movie she made after this was Ironweed, which co-starred Jack Nicholson. And so the idea right. that's that's where it loses all credibility to me because I feel like if she had yeah. felt that way, she wouldn't immediately turn around and make another movie with him. It just doesn't make any sense. No. So it's not true, but it was it was yeah. very interesting to hear all all of that. You know, it's just uh, 
I don't know. I'm sure they had a very pleasant experience working together. And if they didn't, they wouldn't have worked together immediately afterwards. I just, um, I, I, I hate stuff like that because it does affect people's personal lives. Right. You know, when you're talking about, you know, when you're publishing a story about Meryl Streep having an affair with Jack Nicholson when she is when she was married and had with young kids, whether or not it's true, it's so harmful. Even, you know, even 40 years later. Right. <laughs> 30 years later, you know, when you bring it up in a biography, it's so harmful. Yeah. And, uh... No, I mean that. I, it's part of the deal in Hollywood, uh, and I think I think actors are, um, you know, that that two percent of very successful actors are used to it to some degree, and um, are ready for it and can blow it off. But you know, Meryl Streep's always managed to keep herself out of the tabloids. She's never been tabloid fodder, so right. I'm sure that was an unknown experience. I was just going to say it's kind of interesting and kind of amazing that she's actually throughout her long career, having worked with you know all of the great leading men of, of that era that she was really only rumored. I did hear a thing about her and Jeremy, Jeremy Irons one time too. That's the only other time I've ever heard, you know, rumors of, you know, an affair. And I'm sure neither one of them was true, but those were the only two times that I ever heard. Although I did, it's kind of funny because I was looking through, I think it was the Yahoo homepage, you know, just kind of looking to see the news the other day. And as I'm scrolling down, you know how every once in a while they have just like clickbait things. It'll be, you know, like Uh whatever BuzzFeed article or whatever, you know, Vulture article, something that is just designed to get you to click on it because of a kind of sensationalized headline. And there was a picture of, there was a picture of Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. And I won't get it perfectly, but the headline was something like, after 30 years, they finally marry. And I remember thinking, well, <laughs> Meryl is married to somebody else. Um, I don't know if Robert Redford's married, but I'm pretty sure Meryl Streep and Robert Redford didn't get married this weekend. So that's clickbait. Um, that's amazing. So I guess it it is... Uh, it is still happening, I guess, every once in a while. I mean, it's kind of interesting that it's happening more, you know, within the last five years than it ever did in the early part of her career. Or maybe we just are unaware of when it happened early on in her career. But, um, right. I thought that was kind of funny. I I didn't click on it. I part of me wanted to. I I thought I could justify it by saying, "Well, I host a Meryl Streep podcast. This is technically research." But I didn't want to give them the click. I just couldn't do it. Well, I read, I, when I read, I read a Variety article about that, that biography of uh, Jack Nicholson, and the guy, the, the, whoever wrote it, had said in an interview, and I don't know if this is true, this was just in the article, that that in some interview, uh, I don't know if it was TV or radio or, or print or what, um, with Meryl Streep, somebody asked her um, to play the, the Shag, Mary Kill game. With Dustin Hoffman, Robert yes. Redford, and Jack Nicholson, right. picked to kill Dustin Hoffman. Yep. <laughs> Mary Robert Redford and and Shag Jack Nicholson. So I bet you a million bucks that 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 headline was based on that. Yeah, probably. Yeah, no, I actually I did see that interview. That was like I don't was that the Graham Norton show that that was on. That was something like that where they managed to get oh, her to maybe. do that. She's so funny on Graham Norton. Yeah. No, I I was familiar with that one too. To me, this movie, um, the only thing about this movie is it kind of 
it ends really abruptly to me. I, do you get the sense yes. of that? It's like uh, yeah. there's that dinner party where she finally decides, okay, I'm done with this, you know, the the pie in the face. Um, and then she gets on a plane and goes in the credits roll. And, you know, there's no like, what does her life look like after that? It's just, it ends really So imagine, abruptly. this is what I was thinking. I think it ended up getting really watered down because, because imagine a film ending that way if the stakes had been so high and we really understood how miserable and unbearable it truly was for her. Uh, that her, and and how difficult it would be for her to like pick up her kids and actually leave. If we had felt that, I think that ending would have been a lot more satisfying. Yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily dislike. Like, okay, she's leaving. Right. I don't. I don't dislike the ending itself. Like the imagery of like her on a plane. It's you know the metaphor of like you know heading off to something better or whatever. I'm fine with that. But the it just the abruptness of it seemed strange. To oh me. yeah. Um, it is strange in the context of the film because it just doesn't have any. It doesn't have any context, right? Because there's no weight behind the rest of it, right? Um, music from this movie is is highly regarded. Uh, Carly Simon wrote the music, yes. and she had a big hit with a song that she wrote for it called "Coming Around Again." Um, I host a podcast about Joni Mitchell, so it should come as no surprise that I also like Carly Simon. <laughs> um, and yes, I it, love her. It, um, I, you know, I, I got the coming around record when it came out, or probably not when it came out. I would have been about seven, so probably not. But um, actually, no, I would have been four. Wow, I definitely did not get the coming around yeah. record when it came out. But when it was out on CD, <laughs> I bought it, and um, it took me a while to figure out that this was the connection there. You know, she, she wrote a lot of music for, uh, Nora Ephron movies and a few times for Mike Nichol movies. Yeah. They had like a real connection. Working girl is yes. obviously probably the most iconic and yeah. my favorite. Well, and that's what she won the Oscar for. Carly Simon won an Oscar for that song. Um, right. so yeah, this one, I don't think uh, this movie, I don't think ended up being nominated for anything in terms of golden globes or Academy awards. It was nominated for in a, uh, an American Comedy Award for Meryl Streep, and it won um, an international film festival. I'm not even going to try to say the Valladolid. <laughs> I don't know how to say it, but Meryl Streep won <laughs> best. No Meryl Streep won best actress at some international film festival thing uh, for this movie, which was kind of interesting. So, um, cry- chronologically, where this movie sits in her filmography is right after Out of Africa which we talked about earlier. And again, we've been talking about it for a while now, but right before Ironweed. So it's a, you know, kind of a, a lighter movie in between those two, which are much heavier, but still not a laugh riot, this movie. Um, maybe maybe one of the lightest ones she did in the 80s, though. Yeah. Have you seen um, uh, Nora Ephron's AFI Tribute to Meryl Streep? Yes, I love it. It's so wonderful. We should uh, can we play a clip for that at the end of this for, for if, our listeners? If it's on <laughs> how, YouTube, how yes. Great it is to have Meryl Streep play you. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, if I if it's on YouTube, I'll put it on there at the end. It probably okay. is. I think uh, I think that it's whole worth watching everyone go 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 YouTube it. Yeah, that whole AFI tribute is awesome. I I like it's just yeah. so 
cool. And, you know, they, they really got the best guests for her thing. I'm anxious to see Diane Keaton's. I know it's aired once. Uh, Diane Keaton was honored this year, and Meryl was there. She honored her. I haven't seen it yet. I know it aired at least once, and I think it's airing again in about a month. Um I think we can. Oh, good, because I missed it. I meant to T it, and I, I missed it. So yeah. I'll have to get it the next time. I think we can. Um kind of spill the beans a little bit that we talked about you know we did an earlier tribute episode to Carrie Fisher and we talked about wanting to do those tribute episodes once in a while and uh, we had talked a few weeks ago we thought actually our next one would be Diane Keaton and we would try to time it out to you know late July when they replay that so um, we'll we'll keep an eye on that but I'd like to see that AFI tribute before we do the episode because I think it might be kind of insightful Um, and it'd be fun to hear what Meryl has to say about Diane Keaton too so um, yeah, yeah, no, those AFI things are really cool. So, um, I guess the big questions then would be you kind of, so you don't think it's staying in your top five necessarily? No, you know, I, I, in some ways appreciated it more being an adult and watching it. Uh, I, I think the last time I watched it was probably during college. Oh, sure. Um, and, um, you know, I just, you just identify with more as you get older. So in, in that respect, I appreciated it more. Um, but yeah, it, I, it's not in my top five anymore. I don't think. No, I have a <laughs> so much work. I have a prediction with what will take its place. Yeah. When you finally see Silkwood, I think that's going to do it. I bet it will. I think that's going to really do it. I'm excited to see it. Would it make the 10 film starter pack? That's a little broader. I don't know. We'll have to, i got to come back to that one. Okay. Fair enough. I, I, uh, maybe, but I don't think so. Yeah, this is... I, I, it, I don't think so. There are other examples. I feel like Postcards from the Edge captures that same sort of, um, uh, you know, wo- woman on the edge. Yep. <laughs> Comedy that Meryl Streep does so well. And uh, and I feel like that has its proper place in the, in the top ten and certainly my top five. So I feel like Postcards from the Edge covers it, and it was done pretty close in time to this. What was it, ninety? Yep, and a lot of carryover. 90, yeah, both Mike Nichols movies. I mean, it's a similar tone movie. It's obviously different subject matter, but it's similar tone because right. Carrie, Carrie Fisher and Nora Ephron, um, I you know they're simpatico. It's a real close connection in terms of yeah. the way they wrote so I, I agree with you I'm, I'm closer to Postcards from the Edge and I like this movie don't get me wrong um, I like that she had a lot of scenes with oh, with Jeff Daniels in this movie because I think he's he's really great yeah. too and uh, other than the like one amazing perfect scene that they had together in the hours you know it was good to see them have it was shorter scenes and not as uh, you know not as full of depth perhaps, but it was cool to see them work together. I particularly like the scene where she, you know, she tells him, I want to come back. And he says, well, yeah, your job is always here. you waiting for you. You almost, I don't know. I had the, I couldn't remember exactly how that scene oh, yeah. went this time when I was watching it. I almost was thinking that he was going to say that she couldn't come back or that her job, you know, he had replaced her or something like that. And it was, it was great to hear the, yeah, you can come back whenever you want. We'd love to have you back thing. So, and you know, right at the very beginning, you talked about that earlier, the wedding, you know, he's who she goes to the wedding with Jeff Daniels and kind of plays wingman to her as she's trying to pick up Jack Nicholson. So, yeah, I, I kind of get the impression that he, um, 
he definitely loves her. <laughs> she's right. his wing. He's his. He's her wingman. Right. Um, and he, they had some really sweet moments. You know, I actually love that scene on the couch where he's like, you know, I would have told you that when you got married. <laughs> if it didn't work out, you always have a place. But it's sort of morbid. Right. Well, um, and that idea of like, you know, if you say something, you know, she she basically was, yeah, I think he says something. I might be mixing this up with something else I saw recently, but it, does he say something like, I never really liked him, but I couldn't tell you that because then if you got back together with him, am I misremembering this? She says, no, she says to him, you never really liked him, did you? And he just evades the question, I think. And then later on, when she goes back to work, the scene where he, he feels her baby kick, which is a really sweet moment, Yeah, she tries to get him, that may be where, she tries to get him to say, he's like, no, this is where you're, I'm going to say something, and then you're going to go back, and you're going to hold it against me the rest of my days. Right, 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 yep. <laughs> yeah. No, so you're right, it is that. Yeah. And that of course exists in other movies, but it's still, I don't know this. I love that. That's it's, it's a, just one of those universal truth things that that's always true. Um, Meryl, yeah. Meryl Streep was pregnant in real life during the making of this. Um, yes. I I'm guessing it must've been with grace because obviously Mamie already existed. And I think Louise is too young. So it must've been with grace that she was pregnant. So anyway, she was really pregnant during the making of this movie. Yeah. I and don't know. Wearing a fake pregnancy belly. And I think, horribly uncomfortable yeah i'm sure i'm sure um yeah anything else about this particular movie no i think we're ready to move on to our next segment yeah which would you rather do six degrees or the movies meryl was almost in let's do six degrees first okay so last time we did the emma watson uh connection and the idea as we talked about last time was trying to connect her without using harry potter because emma thompson and a few other people would just be too easy um so what did you come up with did you come up with one we both of course kind of gave it away we were thinking about the beauty and the beast connection yeah which actually emma thompson's in that too yeah kevin klein was who i thought of for that too emma thompson is actually in beauty and the beast too (laughs) so i guess oh yeah we could have gone with we could have gone with that. There was there was a couple other ones in Beauty and the Beast. Um, I can't remember. Well, Audra McDonald uh, is, I think, I haven't seen the live action Beauty and the Beast, but um, yes, she's in it. Stanley Tucci's in it. Oh yes, he was he was one of the other ones. The Audra McDonald one because Audra has not been in a movie with Meryl Streep, but uh, she was her. She gave her voice lessons when she did Florence Foster Jenkins. She did some sort of coaching with her. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. She worked with her on on the Arias because I think when they were doing Florence Foster Jenkins, I think we talked about this at the time, was Meryl had the idea in her head that she wanted to actually learn the Arias first, like actually be able to sing them basically as well as she would be able to, and then learn how to sing them, sing them quote unquote poorly. Um, Right, right, right. So the other connection that doesn't exist right now but will exist shortly as Emma Watson was just in a movie this year with Tom Hanks called The Circle and Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep are filming a movie right now called The Papers and it's just so excited I am too did you see somebody put out the first uh, picture of them together did you see that this week it's a a selfie thing it's not like a set shot or something but they both seem to be in costume Tom Hanks is actually kind of it's taken from a weird angle Uh, it's taken it's kind of like they're they're kind of off 
I don't know. It's almost like they're off to the side. And, and there's a third person in it who I didn't get a close enough look at to see who it is. But um, both both Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep seem to have kind of unique looking hair. But it might just be the angle. Um, <laughs> Tom Hanks has kind of the... I have to look this up now. Kind of has the uh, Da Vinci Code hair thing. The like kind of longer hair oh, thing. okay. Which people did not like when Da Vinci Code came out. No. People were making fun of his hair. So it's not quite as long as it was in Da Vinci Code, but it kind of has that sort of vibe to it. And uh, yeah, so there was just a little onset selfie of the two of them kind of standing there together with somebody else. It's probably somebody famous and I just didn't look at it close enough, but um, it wasn't Spielberg. It was a woman, whoever it was. Um, so, okay. And then we can move on. Oh, wait. Did um, we- can I say something really randomly? This is so random, guys, and completely unrelated to this podcast. I'm on IMDb. Um, I would like everybody to know that Sharknado 5 is coming out in August. Can we talk about how I did not realize that there was Sharknado 3 and 4, while Sharknado 1 and 2 may be on my radar, because they were sort of popular at the time? Yeah. How did 3 and 4 come out I think they that quickly? D- I think they do one every year. Has it been that long since the first one came out? I, th- I think they've been doing one every year. It got, Because that first one was so uh, such a surprise hit that I think they just keep pumping them out. It's like Saw. You remember how they kept making Saw, you know, over oh, and over yeah. and over again every year? Yeah. It's it's like that. It's so disturbing. I, I actually have never seen any of the Sharknados. Have you? Um, I saw the first one, and it's a thing of beauty. I, I mean, I, I watched because I knew it was going to be a train wreck, and it sure enough is, but it's like the most glorious kind of train wreck. Apparently, in Sharknado Five, there are sharks flying at the Big Ben. Right. Oh, I'm just looking at the photo. <laughs> uh, I one of my favorite. I did not go back for Sharknado Two. I'll tell you that. No, I've I've been. I, I at some point I want to watch them. Um, I one of my favorite podcasts. I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but one of my favorite podcasts is one called How Did This Get Made, which is actually a very very popular podcast. Um, and it's it's three hosts usually, although occasionally one of them won't be there. It's Paul Shear, June Diane Raphael, and uh, Jason Manzukis, who might be the funniest person on the planet. And um, they they basically and then usually they have a guest or two, and uh, they usually just take a bad movie and and rip it to shreds. And so they've done all the Sharknado movies, which is why I knew that they were they've done so many of them. And I'm not at all surprised that there's a fifth one coming out this year because I assume they're going to keep going for as long as they. Can. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I want to bring up, which is, you know, this episode's been a little bit short because there's right. not much to say about heartburn. So I'll go ahead and mention this as well. We've talked a couple times about Steven Spielberg's films not um, not generating very impressive roles for women. Right. Um, with the exception of The Color Purple and, um, and this upcoming film seems really interesting. Uh, well, did you hear about Elizabeth Banks? She got in hot water. I did, and actually, I was just about to say, I'm glad you said, except for the color purple, because that's what she did. That's what she got in trouble for. <laughs> right. So she she called. Well, first of all, you don't uh, you don't win an award and call another filmmaker out. Yeah, I don't know what she while was you're thinking. The award. I don't know what she it was thinking. It wasn't the best of ideas, but she got up to win this award, and she called Stephen Spielberg for for never having a. a, a woman in a lead role in a film and 
someone in the audience called out the color purple, and she didn't believe it at first, and it became... It became a major issue for her to the point where she had to issue an apology to Steven Spielberg. Right. And it's a little bit, it's frustrating because she did flub, but at the same time, people are missing the point. Like, she wasn't entirely inaccurate. She was hitting upon the fact that they, I mean, filmmakers like Spielberg and, and Scorsese really have not done anything. Right. Um, to to promote women in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, I get it. Up to a certain point in your career, you're telling the stories that speak to you, and that's your prerogative as a director. But I feel like when you reach their status, you have a certain social obligation. Right. At least to produce, you know, to to push more films. And, I, you know, I went and I looked at Spielberg's producing roster, and it's a little bit better, but it's not really much better. Yeah. So, you know... I, I, I feel bad for Elizabeth Banks. It was poorly poorly chosen words, poor timing, uh, good intentions. Well, that was the thing that confused me. I mean, I think part of the reason it blew up was that it, without any context, it seems like a really strange choice to make. Was Spielberg at this awards thing? No, not at all. I think it was a women's... Let me look up what award ceremony she was at. I mean, she was receiving... She was receiving an award in her capacity as as a female filmmaker. I'm fairly certain. Well, and see, I don't know if the fact I, I don't know if him if he had been there. I don't know if that would have made the situation better or worse. Honestly, it it seems kind of shady to like just probably worse. Probably, yeah. It seems kind of shady to call somebody out. Um, you know, with no context, without having, you know, him there and have a reason to, you know, but at the same time, like he would have hated being in the room when that happened too. you know, I mean, that would have been yeah. a nightmare situation. So it was the women in film crystal award. Okay. Um, and she called out for not directing films with female leads. Was it just aimed at him, or was he part of a, a bigger list? You know, like was it? You know, you know what? I'm not. I'm not clear on that. Because that's well, also another important thing. Brought up him. So here, here's what she said. She said um, she was presented the Women in Film Crystal Award for Excellence in Film and called Steven Spielberg out on the carpet for not employing females as leads in his films. I went to Indiana Jones and Jaws and every movie Steven Spielberg ever made. And by the way, he's never made a movie with a female lead. Sorry, Steven. I don't mean to call your ass out, but it's true. And then somebody from the audience called out Color Purple and Brinks corrected herself and said, okay, the Color Purple, okay, I'm wrong. And then she questioned it. She said, he directed that? And someone in the crowd yelled out, no. So Banks said, oh, so I'm right still. <laughs> right. She thought he just produced it. Yeah. And um, I guess Sugarland Express was also another one with Goldie Hawn. Right. So right. those were two early ones. Yeah. And then she continued her point. Um, but I don't think about Spielberg. Um, and she said a lot of other things in her speech about women and filmmakers. But I think that was one of the first things she set out the gate. And that's just what people have focused in on. Right. Um, no. Well, interesting. Poor choice of words. Yeah, interesting message. Maybe the wrong time to do it. Yeah. And. But, you know, it's one thing for somebody like you and me to sit on a podcast and talk about Steven Spielberg. Right. Um, I think I, I think you really got to watch yourself 
if you're in the industry. Oh, yeah. When you're speaking openly against somebody like Steven Spielberg, you just don't do it. Right. I mean, you know, Megan Fox called Michael Bay a Nazi and Spielberg fired her for it because of because of the, you know, implications with the Holocaust. And you just don't, you don't mess with your words. Right. Just don't. Well, and it goes back even further with Spielberg. I'm sure this is one of a million examples, but do you remember back when War of the Worlds came out? So Dakota Fanning was, you know, a little girl back then. She was, you know, a little kid. And Kathy Griffin, the comedian who's also recently under fire for a Donald Trump thing, but um, back then she she was doing some sort of red carpet thing and she was just doing these silly little bits. And one of them was she started this uh, fake rumor that Dakota Fanning had just checked into rehab. Um, And so what she was doing was she was asking the celebrities who would come talk to her to give these like fake messages of hope kind of thing. And it was a joke. Like everybody knew, you know, like everybody was making joke ones because they knew it wasn't true. They knew, you know, like Dakota Fanning was just like, you know, very... I don't know like she couldn't have the reason Kathy Griffin thought that was funny because she seemed like the least likely person to do do that instead of the most likely she wasn't saying that about Lindsay Lohan she was saying that about Dakota Fanning you know what I mean Um, and Spielberg got super pissed and like issued some sort of statement about it and he was apparently very you know he thought it was going to affect their box office their opening week and like you know he was really pissed about it and you know like she came under immense fire from all sorts of people you know saying you have to apologize for this um, for making a joke you know I mean I think he for uh, you know uh, hey I don't know I love every movie Steven Spielberg's made I don't know but he doesn't seem to have much of a sense of humor about these things you know like he he doesn't like being called out I don't think well no and they're so and they're so secretive about their filmmaking process and um you know, production and yeah, they take it very, very seriously. Right. Well, I guess for sure that's, that's probably the fundamental point with, with Elizabeth Banks thing is there might be a time and a place to do it. But at the same time, Steven Spielberg is actually making a movie right now with a female, with like the most highly regarded female actress as the lead. It's just not the time to do that because she's, he's literally making one at, as she's, you know, mocking him for not doing that. You just have to be kind of careful about when that was. And, you know, if you're going to take a shot like that at somebody, have have the information there you know, know like right have have that information there and if if you aren't aware that he directed um color purple that means you didn't do your research you didn't look into it and that seems like uh the first step you do if you're going to go after somebody like that so i don't know it is what it is well uh, and i you know what i think the biggest thing for me is and i and uh, again, I know you that directors direct what speaks to them, is that The Color Purple is a ridiculously beautiful film. Right. He did an amazing job with it. It has so much depth. I think it's I think it's one of his better films. And um and I I feel like he's such a good filmmaker. I want to see him do more more dynamic stories. You know, um Bridge of Spies was a wonderful story. Um, it it felt tired in some ways, and been been there, done that, mix it up, Stephen. He's so he's so good. I think everybody just feels like he can he can do more. So I'm excited to see I'm excited to see this new 
this new venture. Yeah. I think For he's sure. I think he's like everybody else where he's kind of he's got a certain wheelhouse where he feels comfortable and that's probably action movies or you know like uh sci-fi movies and Yeah, like the Bridge of Spies kind of Right. And yeah, political thrillers, sci-fi. Although he hasn't done sci-fi for a while. Right. But, you know, that, I mean... A lot of historical dramas. Right. War of the Worlds and, uh, you know, Minority Report and all. You know, those are those are still within the yeah. last few years anyway. And um, so that's probably where he feels the most comfortable. And uh, that doesn't mean that's his only, uh, you know, like you say, he's he's... Some of his character work is is really great. So he shouldn't shy away from that, but maybe he's not as comfortable there. Um, and I think there is also something to be said for, uh, I'm trying to think of, of any exceptions. I'm trying not to pull on Elizabeth Banks and, and <laughs> say something completely wrong, but like his most successful movies have not been the ones where it's kind of smaller, uh, you know, human stories. It's been the, the bigger action stuff. So maybe he's yeah, or or I mean later on, I mean films like Schindler's List and Lincoln. I mean, right. incredibly impactful Munich. Um, although I don't know if Munich is one of his biggest successes, though it's one of my favorites. It's yeah, I feel um, the same way. That's one of my favorite movies that he's done. But yeah, I remember it was not particularly well received. Yeah, um, yeah, he's definitely an, an impactful storyteller. Yeah. Um, and it's not like he hasn't done a world of good right. <laughs> through his filmmaking. Um, so I don't want to diminish that in any way, shape, or form. But, yeah, it was just so poorly timed. I feel really bad for her. I was like, oh, poor choices. Yeah. Poor choices. Do it on a, it on a relatively obscure podcast like <laughs> we are. <laughs> yeah. We can say <laughs> anything about anybody without consequences. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, we, we went on quite a tangent there. We were, so we finished our, uh, six degrees, but we should, we should say who we're doing next yep. this week. Um, this, this was my choice because I happened to be interviewing this, uh, wonderful character actor on Wednesday for my other podcast, which is the Joni Mitchell podcast. Um, and that actor is Stacy Keach, who is a wonderful character actor who's been around forever. He's got over 200 credits on IMDb. So it shouldn't be difficult to, to connect him to Meryl Streep, but there isn't anything that immediately jumps to mind. So I thought he might be a good choice. Um, so that episode will drop, I'm sure a few days after this one does. So if you want to check it out, please do. Um, and yeah, the, the, the next six degrees actor will be Stacy Keach. So, um, Cool. Try to connect him as with as few steps as possible. Um, our last segment is the movies Meryl was almost in, and it's got a Jack Nicholson connection. I've been trying to do ones that have a connection of some sort to the movie we're actually talking about. And uh, this one is a, one of Jack Nicholson's, for sure, lesser-known movies. Um, it's a movie that he did in the very early 90s, not long after their collaborations called Man Trouble, that Meryl was um, almost in. Oh. But she turned down because she was pregnant, I assume, with uh, Louisa then. Uh, so she turned that movie down, and it went to Ellen Barkin. I think I've seen that one, but I don't really remember it. Do you, I don't think I've even heard of it. Like I say, it's one of his lesser known. It's kind of a funny point in, in Jack's career because he was doing... He wasn't doing that many movies, but he had probably just come off Batman um, around that time, you know, a couple years before, and it was before he did Wolf. Um, so early 90s were kind of you know hit and miss 
for him. Uh, but yeah, he did this movie called Man Trouble. Yeah. Ooh, four point six out of ten stars on IMG. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> That's it's, rough. It's probably a good thing that that Merrill ended up not doing it, but. <laughs> So, do you want to... Uh, fascinating, cool. Yeah. Do you want to announce the, the next movie that we're doing, Meryl? This is a left turn for us. The next one we're doing, it's called Before and After, correct? Yes. Do I have that right? Yeah. Okay, it's with Liam, it's with Liam Neeson. Yeah. And it was uh, made in the 90s, so we're going to adventure into that next time and see how it goes. We have a, we have a new concept that we're going to try out Um so the last movie we did was The Deer Hunter, which was a movie from the 70s. This episode we did Heartburn, which is from the 80s. And so we thought we would keep that pattern going and uh, do something from the 90s next, then the 2000s, then the 2010s, and then circle back to the 70s. And we might break from that pattern at some point if there's a reason to, you know, if there's a guest, um, you know, that we want to talk to or something like that. But it just seemed like kind of a fun way to uh, to go through her catalog. And it might be kind of easier for us to... I don't know. I, do, I, Meryl, you've been picking the movies for the most part because I have them all on DVD. But I imagine one of the things that might be tricky is like, you know, she made 60 movies. So like, where do you start? And, and this narrows it down a bit. So instead of picking from 60, we're picking from 10. And, you know, anyway, we'll get to all of them eventually either way. But yeah, and we've been looking for some structure for a while. We didn't want to go chronologically. Right. Um, we didn't want to set ourselves into a hard and fast order. Um, we wanted some freedom to choose, but this this does give us some some st- structure, and I and I think the audience will like it too. I I so. hope so. I uh I it, I as soon as I had the idea, I thought that's actually kind of cool. I like I like the the idea yeah. of going through it this way because it's going to get us to explore basically hopefully as kind of evenly as possible the different eras of of her work because I think. You know, her evolution has been really interesting to watch. And I think kind of having this process of we're going to get through the 70s stuff, of course, before we get through everything else. But, um, you know, I think it'll be interesting to kind of see her see her most recent work and then turn around and go back to her very earliest work, you know, and kind of see that evolution over over time will be kind of fun. So anybody who's who's watching yeah. these movies with us will experience the same thing. That's probably the most important thing is, you know, hopefully this makes people actually want to revisit these movies. Or if we're talking about it, if you haven't seen Heartburn, hopefully this makes you want to go check it out. Even though even though this wasn't the, the best reviewed movie that we've had on, um, I'd certainly say it's definitely worth checking out. I still like this movie very oh, yeah. much. Um, it's worth it for their performances. Yeah. I, I mean, they're both wonderful on it. Every, everyone is. Yeah. Yeah. Maureen Stapleton, uh, Joanne Gleason. Joanne Gleason's hilarious. Yeah. I actually, for the incredible cast, you know, of like bit players in this, Joanna Gleason, Mercedes Rule, Maureen Stapleton, like all these really great, Catherine O'Hara, for goodness sake, Stockard Channing, you know, I mean, all these really, really great actors, um, you know, it would be. It would be lovely to see them have more to do. Also, did you notice um, that Stocker Channing and Richard Macer, uh, I think that's how you say his name, those two, mm-hmm. those two characters are really similar to the parts that Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby played in yes. When Harry Met Sally. It had like almost exactly the same tone. Yes, I did notice that. It had, a, it had a lot of parallels to when Harry met Sally. Right, which is there's 
there's that's a Nora Ephron one too, right? Am I wrong? Yes. yes. Okay. I was for some reason all of a sudden I was thinking no, that's too obvious. But yeah, that was Nora Ephron. Um, so I think I think there's probably a reason that they uh, that probably those two characters probably evolved from that. But I mean they were like exactly the same. It kind of helps that they have Stocker Channing and Carrie Fisher kind of played the role the same way. And same thing for for Richard Macer and Bruno Kirby had kind of a similar style and tone and like tone of voice basically um but anyway yeah. so anyway we're gonna get to uh before and after next which is um a very interesting one it's another dark one uh we had a somewhat lighter one here but before and after takes us back to a dark movie and we won't spoil it now but uh this was i was kind of trying to nudge meryl in the direction of this one um and i had a reason for it because i heard some interesting uh observations from Meryl about this movie so I thought it would be fun to to check it out because it's been a while since I saw it <laughs> just for clarification he was nudging me in the direction of this film because he heard Meryl Street say <laughs> about this film sorry the use of the name Meryl got thrown in there twice <laughs> oh yeah I was I always forget that yes um I tried to talk you into this one. I said, you know, I said, let's do one of, you know, these two or three. And I kind of pleaded my case for this one to you because Meryl Streep yeah. said a few things about it that I thought were really interesting. We'll get into it next time. But she she talked more openly about her struggles with this movie um, than I had ever heard her talk about um, before. So it, in a weird way, even though she was yeah, saying to hear about that. Even though she was saying some kind of negative things about it, it made me want to revisit the movie immediately, which is probably the exact opposite effect of what she was going for, but it kind of made me want to check it out. So, um, yeah. So we'll we'll come back as soon as I'm we excited. can. And, yeah, we're looking forward to it. So uh, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, Nora Ephron. I loved working with Meryl Streep. First, I worked with her on Silkwood. Alice Arlen and I did a script for her. Meryl did Karen Silkwood and the Polish person and the Danish person, blah, blah, blah. But the true stretch, if I do say so, was playing me in Heartburn. I highly recommend having Meryl Streep play you. If your husband is cheating on you with a car hop, get Meryl to play you. You will feel much better. If you get rear-ended in a parking lot, have Meryl Streep play you. If the dingo eats your baby, call Meryl. She plays all of us better than we play ourselves, although it's a little depressing knowing that if you went to audition to play yourself, you would lose out to her. <laughs> Some days when I'm having a hard day, I call up Meryl and she'll come and she'll step in for me. She's so good, people don't really notice. The end of the day and find out how I did and inevitably it's one of the best days I've ever had. You have no idea 
how much work goes into being as good as Meryl is or for making it look as effortless as she makes it look, but I do. Because one night, while we were making heartburn, I went into her trailer. She wasn't expecting me. She wasn't in costume, and she wasn't wearing makeup. She turned out to be a 63-year-old Asian woman named Chipak. <laughs> so Chipak, tonight we honor you.